So, you know, each week, uh, and this is actually kind of funny because Ms. Ann almost forgot to play it for us. Uh, <laughs> uh, around the world, millions of Christians stand to their feet to raise their voices in thousands of different languages and sing the 25 words of a song that we almost missed this morning <laughs> that we've, <laughs> we've come to know uh, as the doxology. Uh, a, a song that Christians have collectively been singing for more than three centuries now. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's likely the single best known verse in all of Christian hymnody. Uh, and I'd be willing to bet, sad to say, probably the least understood. Which is kind of weird because I mean, you know on the surface the lyrics are simple. They're memorable. Uh, if you grew up in church, you probably can't even remember the first time you heard it any more than you can remember taking your first steps uh, or learning to eat with a fork for the first time. And yet as simple and accessible as those four lines are, the truths that they convey are a little harder to get a hold of. But together, I want us to uh, give that a try this morning in our celebration of Trinity Sunday. That's, that's what today is in the church lectionaries, Trinity Sunday. Uh, a day to focus on a doctrine that's central to our Reformed Christian belief and one of the most overwhelming mysteries of our faith. And we're going to do it by uh, looking at it alongside our scripture reading this morning that is uh, coming to us again from the book of Acts, but it's going to fill in parts of Peter's Pentecost sermon that we didn't have time to cover last week. So you know the scene, right? It's the day of Pentecost. Jesus has already ascended back into heaven. And now that his physical absence is here, he sends the Holy Spirit as he promised, who would indwell and empower believers uh, in the mission that he left us, which is to make disciples and to reclaim the world as the dominion of God the Father. And so this is kind of uh, to fill in some of the blanks for stuff we didn't get to last week. So we'll be looking at the book of Acts, chapter 2, beginning in verse 22 through verse 40. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, 
and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for the sure witness of the life of your son in the, the reading that we have today. We thank you for the faithful preaching of the Apostle Peter. And we thank you, Lord, even more for the Holy Spirit that you poured out on that day of Pentecost, that you make available to us even in this moment. And so, Lord, come now by that spirit and write your words on our hearts that we may receive all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, this morning we have kind of a, a flashback in the text to Peter's inaugural sermon on the day of Pentecost uh, as he and the other disciples began to think about and to teach the doctrines that would mold and shape the first century Christian church. And one of those doctrines is the doctrine of the Trinity. And then, of course, you know, you may ask, well, pastor, isn't that a better topic for a Sunday school class or maybe a Wednesday night Bible study? And in some respects, you'd be right because, you know, of course, it's a huge topic that could go in a lot of different directions and elicit questions that we can't possibly cover comprehensively in a 25-minute sermon. But I can't get all of you to come to Bible study. And I can't get all of you to come to Sunday school. And the doctrine of the Trinity is way too important not to at least touch on with you, especially because, uh, or in light of, I should say, the fact that it's hardly ever taught anymore in any kind of real practical way. And so the truth is far too many believers end up thinking of it as an out-of-reach kind of uh, doctrine with very little real-world importance. And so they choose instead to actually kind of ignore it. But I want to give you my response to that kind of thinking today and and get these concepts of the triunity of our God a little more out of the realm of, of head knowledge and more into our hearts. And, you know, I think my main reason for wanting to do that is because the message of the Trinity is really a message of hope. Uh, and, and for way too long, particularly over the last 150 years or so uh, in Western conservative Christian churches uh, at large, has been either the health and wealth gospel or else characterized by a theology of despair and demoralization and defeat. And it happened in large part because we've collectively become, as my old Sunday school teacher used to say, so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Right? And, it, and it happened because we've made the same mistake that our Lord's disciples did uh, and spent too much time staring up into heaven instead of getting a handle on the work that Christ has left us to do. Right? You remember that, that story from a couple weeks back in Matthew 28? And the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth 
has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Right? So there's the disciples, right? They're, they're standing there, you know, slack-jawed, staring up to see what's going to happen next until this pair of angelic messengers have to come and, in essence, give them a slap upside the back of the head to get their attention back on task. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for the church in America, where for too long Christians have adopted the attitude of let's just step back from the world and let's just step back from the total collapse of civilization and let's just stand around and watch for signs that Jesus might be coming back to rescue us at any moment. And please don't mishear me. Yes, he is coming back. And yes, it could be any moment. And yes, prophetically speaking, the world is ripe for it. But church, it was also in Peter's day when he preached that fiery Pentecost sermon. But where, where would we be if Peter and the other disciples had all just died from hyper neck extension, right? St staring up at Jesus' feet in the ascension. And we dare not do that either. Because if the truth of the Trinity is real, and it is, that means you and I have work to do. And Jesus told us what it is. And we know that that work wins. And that we're not just here, as one author said, to polish brass on a sinking ship. We are here to proclaim the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And to do it with the power of the Holy Spirit until that kingdom comes in all of its fullness. So that, that's the whole subtext of Peter's Trinitarian sermon in today's reading. When he's talking about thrones and, and kingdoms and patriarchs like David. And hope for our descendants. And a definite plan for the overthrow of hell and the feet of death. And all of it designed in the mind and will of the Trinity before the creation of the world. And set in motion at the ascension when as Peter preached, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The only problem is that the modern church doesn't preach solid Trinitarian sermons like Peter's anymore. That now instead we have pulpits filled with either weak men or angry women or some that identify as both, pre preaching evangelism as an open invitation to join the losing side. A and they do it in a couple of ways. One of those ways is with the social justice gospel that distracts the church into endless debates on equity and on inclusion and on how much we can make the church like the world so nobody ever feels judged when they do wrong. Right? It's the error of denominations like the United Methodists and the Presbyterian Church USA, and yes, I'm calling them out, and you should be calling your friends and neighbors away from those. And stunningly now, even more conservative traditional denominations like the Southern Baptist Convention that have just adopted CRT as, as what they call another lens through which to view the gospel. But let's be clear. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is not fixing every social injustice in this world, be they real or imagined. The gospel is not any form of racial privilege and then having to apologize for it or abasing ourselves for it. God made us whatever race we are. Right? The gospel is not reparations. The gospel is not unchecked welfare or COVID relief or anything to do with all of the alphabet people. 
No, the gospel is, as Peter said, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. And this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you and I crucified and killed because of our sins by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Church, that's the gospel, period. The other very untrinitarian error of the modern church, which in many ways grows out of that social justice movement, is the recycled old heresy of Gnosticism. It's the same Greek-inspired elitist garbage that dogged the apostles and the disciples of the early church uh, every place they preached. David Chilton, an author, described it like this. He said, it's the unbiblical idea that the truly spiritual man is the person who's sort of non-physical, who doesn't get involved in earthly things, who doesn't work very much or think very hard, and who spends most of his time meditating about how he'd rather be in heaven. But as long as he's on earth, though, he has one main duty in life, to get stepped on for Jesus. And he continues, the spiritual man in this view is, is the wimp, is the loser, but at least he's a good loser. But, but church, the preaching of Peter and the teaching of the Bible and the consequences of belief in the Trinity are very different. Because far from being a message of retreat, they are the perfect picture of God's absolute triune sovereignty over everything in the universe. Whether it's in the heavens above or in the hearts of men or the purple mountain majesties of this country that look too impossible to move. And brothers and sisters, that doctrine should be a profound sense of hope for us. Right? And a reason not to worry because the immensity of our God in three persons has all of that under control. Despite any appearance to the contrary. Or any personal opinion about how we think our life may be going. But the only way you're going to rejoice in the truth of the Trinity is not when you can logically understand every bit of it in all its complexity. But when you lovingly submit to God the Father as the one who can do as he pleases with the creation that he's made. And who could have chucked the whole thing when we humans messed it up? But who instead sent the Son of God who willingly died to rescue us from our open rebellion. And who together, Father and Son, sent us the Holy Spirit to actualize the Father's redemption along with the Son's righteous sacrifice and then fill our hearts and our minds with the reality of the holy truth of the Trinity. And then seals us with that Spirit as a guarantee of our sin's cancellation. Which is not only a message of hope, but church, it's a message of love. It's the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. In fact, First John 4, 8 tells us concerning God that God is love. God is love. In one of his, his books about the nature of God, a, a past commentator said this. He said, in the very nature of God, there's an I-you relationship within the Godhead. And, and he continues, think about it like this. He says, if God, uh, if he's love, then who is he loving before the creation? If God ever says he speaks, who is he speaking to before the creation? He's referring to the fact that God is a being in community. <clears throat> and that communication and affection and love are contained in the Godhead right from the very beginning before anything else was created. Did you ever stop and think about that? Have you ever wondered what God was up to all the way back before the beginning of creation? Now, of course, John Calvin famously said jokingly, of course, that 
God was using that time to create a hell for people that ask questions like that. <laughs> but, but really think about it for a minute in terms of our Trinitarian theme today. If there was a non-Trinity God, right, just a single, just a single one being like that, like the, like the Muslims put forth, a being like that would have a need to create in order to experience a relationship and to not be lonely. Did you ever think about that? But if a God ever needed anything, they wouldn't be a God, would they? But because God is Father, Son, and Spirit, he wasn't ever lonely. He didn't need to create other beings to be content. But he chose to do it because of an overflow of his love that already existed within who he is in himself. And so if right now you're wanting to ask, well, Pastor, why are you beating this drum so hard? And you're saying to yourself, I still don't get why that matters. I want you to please hear me on this, the reason that it matters is because for us it means that we were not needed, but you were chosen. Okay? We were not needed by God, but you and I have been chosen. It means that even though there was already perfect fellowship and a satisfying relationship within the God self from eternity past, he still chose to create you and me. And brothers and sisters, that's a comfort to me. That even though the members of the Trinity have always had each other to love and to fellowship with, that the God of heaven and earth comes to live inside me in order to reproduce that loving, caring, joyful relationship in my heart and, and in your heart and to draw us into unity with them in a way that we could never experience on our own. I, I couldn't and neither could you. Because the Bible says we're all born in sin and separated from God and that we have to be made alive in order to respond to the promise of redemption. We have to be regenerated. We have to be reborn to hear the Father's call of repentance through the work of the Son on the cross by the witness of the Holy Spirit. And all of that because of how much the one single God loves us. Not because he was incomplete without us, but because of an overflow of love that was already embodied in who God is. And when you begin to understand God a little more that way, when you begin to understand the relationship of the Trinity you won't view God anymore as some faraway disciplinarian who just wants your unquestioned obedience just to please him. You won't see him as some kind of cosmic dictator compelling our worship to satisfy him. And he'll begin to show you and to help you experience the reality of his triune nature differently. And we'll begin to live differently because it's a whole different mindset. Uh, understanding that the triunity of the one Godhead can love us perfectly because unlike human relationships that we often pursue to our detriment, God's motivation for loving us is completely selfless. He doesn't want anything from us. He gains nothing by our relationship, and he loses nothing without it. Right? We've talked about this before, but when a person or a nation abandons God, he's not diminished. The one leaving is diminished. And yet he pursues us anyway, and thank God he does, even while we're still sinning. And again, to those who would say, well, well, Pastor, why does it matter? Why does, why does the idea of the Trinity matter when millions of people in Ukraine are dying right now? Why does the idea and the doctrine of the Trinity matter to those who are maybe mourning the loss of a loved one? Why does the doctrine of the Trinity matter to someone who's lost their job and maybe doesn't know how they're going to make ends meet? Why does it matter to someone whose marriage is falling apart or who's received a dreaded news and diagnosis of cancer from the doctor. Why does the, the doctrine of the Trinity matter so much when inflation and, and COVID continue to dominate not only the news, but so much of our daily lives? But brothers and sisters, 
The fact of the matter is the Trinity matters precisely for all of those reasons because of the power that we have to overcome the world and to reclaim the kingdom. And it's the power to rebuild a vibrant, world-changing, heart-changing, heart-awakening, reformation-bringing Christendom is in knowing God rightly. We have to know who God is. And we have to know how he's chosen to reveal himself. So I want to ask you today, do you have a full-orbed picture of exactly who God is and of what he's done for you? Do you have a Trinitarian hope like that? Do you know that kind of interconnected, self-sacrificing love? Have you experienced it? Are you in a relationship with the author of relationships? If you aren't, today is the day to receive that connection. Today is the day to repent and to believe the gospel as you begin to know our God better in the unity of the Trinity, displayed perfectly in the diversity of Father and Son and Holy Spirit, one God who is in you and with you and for you now and forever. Amen. 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 Let's pray together. Gracious God, you sent your word to bring us truth. You sent your spirit to make us holy. Through them, Father, we've come to know the mystery of your life. And so help us to worship you, one God in three, as you reveal yourself in the depths of your being by proclaiming and living our faith in you, Lord. And so grant us, we ask, uh, your mercy and your peace to understand these mysteries through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.